never ever gonna get it. Oh, you're never gonna get it. Never ever gonna get it. We Hate You is a podcast discussing the lives of famous geniuses who turned their backs on the world. Famous singers, ballet dancers, holy fools, writers, artists, actors, personalities and faces. People who had enough and withdrew from the world. We drill over their glorious isolation and judge their occasional comebacks. As self-professed sexy hermits, we identify all over the place and one day hope to join this host of immaculate refuseniks. Until then, we hate you. Stop the world. We want to get off. You've found us, your hosts, Alex and Alexandra, promenading along Avenue Georges Mandel in Paris, outside the house that La Divina, Maria Callas, died in in 1977. Here it is, number 36. Some say she died of a heart attack, but we would like to call it a broken heart. It was the house she retreated to after a tumultuous life and career where she turned away from a world that had drained her of every bit of love and talent. We can see her now waiting by the phone for Aristotle Anassis to call her and dangle another promise. Would he return? More than anything, she wanted to settle down with someone who loved her. She wanted a family life. But as we shall see, that's not what she got. So what did she get? She was the most captivating and startling talent in a world of perfectly functioning instruments. She was a prima donna, the prima donna. Let's try and understand why she became a recluse. What happened in her life that made her say no more to a world that didn't deserve her? So what is a hermit? A person who chooses to shun society and live as a recluse, possibly for religious or spiritual purposes. It derives from the Greek eremos, meaning solitary. Maria Callas was one of the great sopranos of the 20th century. She was born a Greek immigrant in New York City on the 2nd of December 1923, which makes her a Sagittarius. Like you. Yes. It (laughs) means we've got really strong thighs. (laughs) Good loins and strong thighs. Her parents um, already had a daughter and desperately wanted a son. They even consulted astrologists for advice on when was the best for them to conceive. When Maria was born, her parents were bitterly disappointed and she spent her childhood in the shadow of her older, more beautiful sister. It was in these first few years of her life that the family moved back and forward between America and Greece, with the relationship between her father and mother becoming increasingly strained. And by strained, I mean that her father continually cheated on her mother and her mother became increasingly angry with him. This led to physical violence and, of course, a very emotionally abusive environment for the children. But let's go back a step, Alexandra. What does it even mean for a mother to want a son rather than a daughter? What do you think? Um, It is that that child is born already on the back foot. There's already expectations that they can never fulfill isn't it but why would you even want a son well why would you want a son rather than a daughter what would be the reason that you would think that that would be something worth aiming for or the most important thing one one particular sex over another it's a very traditional um kind of attitude isn't it about Mm. wanting someone who's going to carry on 
the family name and the idea of yeah. lineage and, and stuff like that. See, I was thinking that, but the only things I could come up with where that seems to be a problem are like within royalty. You know what mm. I mean? Or, but then again, this is quite a, tr- or within traditional backgrounds, eh? And also, you know, as we're going to discuss, I think there's a lot of narcissism mm-hmm. in the in the parents mm-hmm. in the Callis family. So it could be, you know, the the mother has the daughter already who is beautiful and mm. slim and attractive and everything. So that is her reflection of yeah. her as mm-hmm. a woman, and possibly the father then wants a son to be his mirror image yeah. so that he can live vicariously through him. And we've got one, so why not wish for another one, a different one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it may be as well, I'm just wondering, because of all the problems between the mum and the dad, um, if it was our, dad, our, our attempt to try and appease the father then and try to kind of um, win him back by saying, look what I've given you, I've given you a son. You know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm saying all these things, but this sounds so foreign to me. I can't understand how that anybody... Mindset. Yeah. No. But I don't think there's very much... She has spoken about it a lot, but uh, I don't think there's very much written about why. Mm-hmm. Well, the only thing that I did come up with was the fact that early on, uh, before Maria was born, there was a brother, a brother Vasily born, mm-hmm. and he died. Uh, so maybe they were wanting another Vasily type thing. Yes, yeah, because they must have been so excited and so happy at this, you know, wish fulfillment. They'd they'd got already the golden... paint, they'd maybe already painted the bedroom I blue. I think that's what it is. <laughs> they'd already bought loads of blue things. They'd painted the bedroom blue. They got them a, a wee hat. football strip and everything. <laughs> And then they were like, oh, fuck's sake, we've got I'm another lassie. lassie. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think I'll, I think probably that. Booked him in for to get his ears pierced. <laughs> <laughs> right, so at the beginning then, there's obviously already these mother issues. Uh, her mother forced her to take music lessons from a very early age. I think it was five. Uh, instilling her... Uh, with a complex about having to excel in order to be worthy of her mother and father's affection. So it seems that Maria wasn't worth anything unless she could be the best. And this role of entertainer for the family becomes interesting here. She becomes a conduit for the pressures and strains within the family and a way of distracting them from it. And it seems that her mother put all her own needs for love and attention onto Maria as well when she realised she had a talent. But music was an escape for Maria. She could literally get out the house, away from the abuse and madness, when she was at her singing lessons. Her teacher said that she would stay there for the whole day. I think I heard between five and seven hours she was there just to to, um, get away from the house, watching and learning from the other students after their classes had finished. She definitely didn't want to go home. Mm -hmm. And later on, when they were back in Greece during World War II, her mother forced her two daughters, Maria and Yakinthe, Jackie, has changed her name to Jackie, mm-hmm. to go out uh, on dates with Italian and German officers. Can I just highlight something mm-hmm. here, which you may have? Oh, your dog has actually chewed oh, fuck. the fuck out of my shoes. <gasps> so I need to put a muzzle on him. I'm going to just take them off. <laughs> <laughs> Throw them at him. Um, because, wow, wow. I was like, oh, he's only got little teeth. It won't be doing much damage, but oh check that God. out. Check that out. I owe you £20. Uh, don't <laughs> tell them that that's how much they cost. 
Um, <laughs> on sale. Louboutins. Um, Did you paint the sole red yourself? <laughs> with nail varnish, yes. Um, oh, he's just going to eat my toes now. Toe. He's just going to eat my... What yeah. is it with the foot fetish with these animals? Um, yeah, so what I was just going to... Um, draw our attention to and do a little bit of foreshadowing here is the fact that her childhood rival, this more attractive, um, more approved of person in her life was her sister who was known by the name Jackie mm-hmm. and it would turn oh. out that another person called Jackie would present themselves as a rival <laughs> later on in her life. She is beset by Jackies. Mm-hmm. It's it's that kind of like Herod thing, isn't it? Where you should round up all of the babies named Jackie, kill them at birth, um, just so that none of them try and fuck with you later on in life. <clears throat> <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> so... No, I, just, I I think imagine imagine that you and they hated each other as well later in life. She had nothing to do. I think there was a tour in Mexico. She took her mum. I think she may have taken her sister as well. Mm-hmm. And then after that, never again. There no. was there was no connection with any of them. She tried when she was beginning to become famous to kind of prove herself to them, but uh, it, it it wasn't for happening. No. Ah, <sighs> so mum. Would force the two daughters mm-hmm. to do what? Go out with Nazi officers. Now, it's like anything, you, there's always that kind of euphemism, go out on a date with. Uh-huh. So, was there, there is this kind of rumour that she was essentially whoring them. Right. And so the mum, therefore, becomes a pimp. Mm-hmm. And it's also been said that the mother herself was um, a sex worker. Right. And was doing the same thing. So was was fraternising with the Nazis uh, and uh, Italian officers as well. And then living vicariously through her daughters is another theme, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. the mother's clearly a narcissist and she, yeah, if she, if she can't be as successful you know, with men, then she's going to do make her daughters be appealing to men because then that's a reflection on her. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's also the kind of, you think, what would you do? How bad was it? What would you do to survive? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Uh, it could be desperate times call, um, calling for desperate measures, you know, but mm. pimping your daughter? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a Hard bit... Hard to justify. Yeah, that's a bit yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. So, this is the rise of of the child star in Hollywood. Uh, And her mother, it seems, wanted a child star of her own. Maria herself said she wanted someone like Shirley Temple, some kind of young, uh, I suppose, manipulable Mm -hmm. um, little puppet that she could make money out of. We cash cow. So Mm -hmm. you change from pimping her one way to pimping her another way. Mm -hmm. And she forced... Maria into the Greek conservatoire when she was 13. Now, Maria pretended she was tall, she says. She pretended that she was 17 mm-hmm. in order to get in. And I'm guessing they probably knew she wasn't, but accepted her anyway. They, they ticked the box and let her in. And Maria says, How could I protest? A girl like me against a temperament like my mother's. It was cruelty. There should be a law against it. Mm-hmm. So she was not really wanting to go into music in that capacity from a very early age. So that's still, in her early teens, she was 
doing it because she was forced into it. So there's that <clears throat> initial resentment. Anyway, it could be, I'm casting aspersions, yeah, it could be that music was something that she was naturally drawn to as a child. It could have been a form of escapism from her shit family mm -hmm. life, but then it was a talent that was then exploited and used against her by her mum. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what better way to kill a passion than to turn it into yeah. work? You've got that, and then you've got the, the kind of... The, the split that happens where at the same time it was the only place when she went to um, the um, music school that she could escape yep and, mm -hmm. and got attention and love mm -hmm. you know so it's so it's already there's already a, conf a, a confliction it's already the, the start of some complex <gasps> PTSD yeah hi there hey <laughs> <laughs> so later on a little bit older now she's now in her late teens she was bullied ignored, taunted and laughed at by the other sopranos in the opera companies that she got accepted in. They would stand in the wings whispering abuse at her as she sung. She was beginning to be known as a major talent even at that early age uh, and this was not sitting well with the ugly sisters of the stage. <laughs> but the only place she would get love, as I said, was from her singing teachers and she seemed to have quite a maternal relationship with them. Particularly... Elvira de Hidalgo, uh, who was our, our main teacher at that time. And Maria said of Hidalgo, this elect teacher gave me her whole heart. With more than anyone, I felt like family with her. So imagine that. I, always th I was thinking about that the other day, where you've got a teacher, a special teacher that just seems to give you all the love and attention that you're not getting anywhere else, you know? Did you have that growing up? I was thinking about that as well. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I kind of did. You know, there were, cer there were certain teachers that I, that I thought were wonderful. The head teacher, actually, in my primary school was fantastic. We used to... Some of it... Well, I remember doing it. I don't know if everybody did. But she would get down on one knee when we came into the, into the school, right? So just after lining up and put her arms out. And give everybody a cuddle. Oh my god! You know, and I remember, I remember her perfume actually. I um, think it was Reeve Gosh. Interesting. Well, that would that would fit in with the timeline, mm -hmm. wouldn't it? I always remembered it being much more kind of civet. It could have been her natural musks. I always remember <laughs> it being a little bit more with her arms outstretched, spreading sweating, those pheromones onto the children, cuddling all these kids, exhausted, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, she was just, the, and I guess what her name was, Mrs. Hart. Oh. She was the loveliest person it's in like the Miss world. like Miss Honey from Matilda. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so she was great. Uh, so, yeah, definitely did you? Um, I, well, thinking about my head teacher from primary school, and um, that was quite an influential person as mm -hmm. well. Like, she, she wasn't someone who would get down on one knee and hug you as you came into school, but she was incredibly glamorous. Mm always wore you know very strong perfume it's probably mm -hmm. something like chanel number no. five or, uh -huh. i don't know she's probably not trashy enough for giorgio that's uh, <laughs> that's more my kind of line Auntie. but she would wear stiletto high heels mm -hmm. and pencil skirts um glossy nylon tights and she always had her hair like blow dried full lipstick and she had some gold teeth as well which i loved because wonderful. it just did not fit with the rest of the quite uh -huh you know, starchy, kind of classy image. And I remember we used to all sit on the floor, like cross-legged in assembly, like singing hymns and stuff. And she would walk up and down the rows of kids, 
and she would always step on people's fingers with her high heels. <laughs> but because she was quite scary, quite a uh-huh. formidable character, <laughs> someone like sitting next to me and they'd get their hand trampled on by a stiletto heel and they would just like stifle the scream because they didn't want to get in trouble. And I think even at that age of like six or seven, I looked at that and I just thought, that is a woman that's woman and that's who I am seeking to embody Uh when I'm in my 50s or whatever well Mrs Hart now see 50s I wonder if they were in their 30s or 40s you know what I mean oh god yeah but Mrs Hart I when I look back and think of her in my mind's eye it's kind of like um, Jackie Collins you know what I mean or or like Alexis and and, um, Dynasty in terms of her style yeah I see her through a kind of haze again she had that kind of big kind of like um like uh blow-dried hair mm-hmm. you know always dressed immaculately i see her in a kind of like dark 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 kind of pink right. you know like a kind of really deep coral mm-hmm. uh always high heels always dressed to the nines as well you know so these were these were wonderfully fascinating but that's such a, a version of ma- maternal love you know mm-hmm. and and a, and a kind of in such a glamorous way, empowering and powerful women. Mm-hmm. You know, we're again, they're, they're, our, our idols are who we, who we <laughs> wanted to become, who we have become. Yes. <laughs> so, love also came to Maria mm-hmm. in a very abstract way, then, from the audience, of course, the people in the dark. But how can you translate that into anything that's emotionally useful? These faces, all these people who are telling you that you're, through applause, telling you that you're wonderful, loving, well, telling you, I suppose telling your talent that it is wonderful, but then, mm-hmm. I, come on, it's coming from you, you know? So you thinking that you're therefore wonderful, uh, but not from the people that she wanted it, not attention or love from the people that she wanted it from. And isn't that always the way? Yeah, it's like you're getting um, a form of sustenance, in the approval, um, but it is approval that's contingent on you sharing your talent, mm-hmm. um, making that into something other people can consume and enjoy and be entertained by, but nobody is really seeing the you beyond no. that. It's conditional love, mm-hmm. isn't it? Very, yeah. Mm-hmm. So if your talent wavers that day, you get less love. Yeah, and while there will be people applauding and people, you know... Um, speaking highly of her and, and, and giving her a lot of love and approval, there'd also be a lot of detractors, as we know Maria Callas is one of the... She got as much scorn, didn't she, mm-hmm. for her for her abilities and her unconventional approach as she did, um, you know, praise as well. So it's like, if you believe the praise, then you've also got to believe the yeah. detractors. Because mm-hmm. how does the mind filter that out? Mm-hmm. You know, we've not got some kind of equipment in there that only in fact as we know as most people know you generally hold on to the crap yeah that people say the criticisms rather than all the 99 good things mm-hmm. you know so you're a, a you're still thirsting for that love and attention because you need it because you've not been given it mm-hmm. yet your talent wavers a little bit all of a sudden it stops and all you're left with is all the negatives and when you're getting praise, if it's not from the people that you want it to be from... It doesn't really count. It doesn't really count. It's like getting loads of um, comments on photographs from l- ugly guys. 
you know looking hot <laughs> looking hot and it's like well yeah those likes are empty likes <laughs> you know so i do i do empath i do empathize with that so as you mentioned, um, these early comparisons uh, with her older sister may have triggered a lot within her, mm-hmm. particularly this this kind of obsession that happened with dieting and, and extreme weight loss, uh, which many have considered as was a a, fa- a major factor in her d- the deterioration of her vocal abilities. Now, as a singer, Alexandra. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Because there is that you do hear, like it's it's this kind of popular myth that I remember people used to say about, um, oh God, Alison Moye. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, oh, she's got one of the great big, booming kind of fat women voices type thing. Uh-huh. You know, and you do hear you hear it like there was that, but you you hear it from music critics etc. as well. So this relationship between weight gain, weight loss, and the voice is it true i don't think that it is true i mean i don't know i'm not an authority on um the physicality and and how you know the size of one's body impacts on your vocal abilities so anything that i say take it with a massive pinch of salt if you know better then please feel free to get in touch with us and correct me um but I would say that it's got more to do with your lung capacity mm. um, than it has with your physical size because your amount of body fat really shouldn't impact on on your vocal cords, on your lung capacity. But um, extreme dieting obviously brings with it a lot of fatigue um, and it could be that the the mistreatment that she was putting her body through and the depletion of her energy, which mm-hmm. that caused, would then have impacted on her ability to, to perform with as much power and strength, See, you know? See, I wonder, well, the, the, the strength thing, I mean, if it's about your lung capacity and then therefore all the musculature mm-hmm. all around that, your diaphragm, etc. If there's extreme weight loss, then there's loss of muscle. Yes. You know, so fatigue, yeah. Mm-hmm. But also like muscle wastage. Muscle wastage. So and you just think that that as if that's all changing, then you'd think that all the techniques that you previously had would be altering as your weight or the muscle mass was changing. You know. Mm-hmm. So it does make it makes some kind of sense. Absolutely. I mean, we're not. We're not. <laughs> what do we call it? Um, doctors of um, bone structure and um, muscle structure, but I could imagine it would have an effect like that. Yeah, and we know that, you know, you don't have to be a certain size in order to be a great and powerful singer. I mean, we talked about Alison Moyer. She has lost an insane amount of weight, but looking at some of her live performances from more recent years, she still sounds incredible. Mm -hmm. You've got people like Edith Piaf as well, who, you know... eh, Maria Callas. Diamanda Galas. Diamanda Galas, very slim. Um... And PJ Harvey, Harvey. Yeah. tiny, big, booming, kind of soulful voice when she wants to put it there. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. So who knows? Write in and tell us. We do not know. Yes, but knowledge is power, so do <laughs> tell us. <laughs> but when the film Roman Holiday um, was being filmed, mm-hmm. she announced that she wanted to be as thin 
as Audrey Hepburn. Don't we all? <laughs> and the following year, she lost eighty pounds. Now, how much is eighty pounds? Because I don't understand pounds and how they convert to stone. I always think of things in terms of stones. I think that must. Well, her sister uh-huh. said in her book, Sisters, <laughs> that um, <laughs> she lost. 50 kilos and I did do a translation of that yeah and that became just a little bit more than seven stones in do weight do you know I weigh at my last count which was before Christmas but I'm choosing to still go by those figures um I am always around 55 mm-hmm. kilograms so she lost you so she lost me so I'm thinking I, I haven't seen any pictures of her when she was young so I don't how can you can? I uh, my oh, it's funny. I've I've definitely been half the weight of exes of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, they were all tall. I'm quite short. Mm-hmm. So maybe like a a six, She was five foot eight. Right? Was she? Yeah. She was a tall woman. So she was my height. Uh-huh. Right? Uh huh. And so she could possibly carry more weight. But it would be dispersed more evenly, so she wouldn't look particularly. But I mean, seven stones still a lot to be able to lose and still be alive. Like I've, I'm going to say, I've done it <laughs> nearly. Right. Sorry. Um, so she lost so much weight that conductors that she had previously worked with would would just walk by her. They didn't recognise her at all. Uh, there was an absolute total transformation, and you can see it all, uh-huh. all of a sudden. That, that she's just this elongated self. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you see her body language even seems to change. She, she just seems to become much more aware of where her hands are. and you Have know what more I mean? confidence and yeah. less self-conscious about putting herself on display, possibly. Mm-hmm. This is when I wonder if this is when La Callas mm-hmm. comes to um, the front of the stage rather than Maria. So there seems to be some kind of, you know, she's now created this, oh, this persona that seems to take over from the the shyer, scared, mm-hmm. younger, bigger, Maria. Uh huh. You know, yeah. they they had already been um, referring to her as La Davina before then. You know, but all of a sudden she is now La Callas. Mm. We could see this refusal of food, I think. Right. Or at least this complicated relationship with food as an expression of rejecting a certain kind of motherly love and nourishment. The mother rejected her, so she rejects the mother. Now, this is cod psychology. It's a little bit informed by uh, the writings of Julia Kristeva. Mm-hmm. I think it's in Black Sun, where she talks about, in great depth, it's either Black Sun or... I can't remember what else. She talks in great depth about the relationship between the mother and daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kind of psychological, the psychic tension between the two, and particularly in relation to food. Now, that could be in um, The Powers of Horror, the one the book about abjection as well. Yes, yes, there's, there's certainly stuff yeah, about food in, in that And milk, one. and milk. refusing milk uh-huh. and stuff like that. So it could be that. So what kind of toxic milk would you be getting from... A mother like that. It's understandable mm-hmm. for that in that in that sense that you would associate that type of poisoned sustenance mm-hmm. with something that you just you didn't you didn't want near you that you then wanted to control. You yeah. Uh huh. On your own terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, 
I think this shows a, a kind of masochism as well because it's a torturing of the body mm-hmm. you know in relation to narcissism there's a because there's this new all improved and in inverted commas armored body that's been created uh, she must have realized that she was love lovable if she denied herself pleasure if she denied herself sustenance all these people are now telling her that she's beautiful and perfect and you know the biggest thing that's mm-hmm. ever that's when all of a sudden Dior comes knocking with dresses and film crews and photographers mm-hmm. and you are now La Callas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're now loved for this new image that you've created. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it, the link between food and the idea of punishing oneself in order to transform oneself. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of transcendence through suffering mm-hmm. that... Possibly when you're doing it, you're not conscious of it, but it's like, how do you even unpick that? It's it's so entrenched with her upbringing, with the fact that she was compared unfavorably to her sister, who was slimmer mm-hmm. and more attractive. She was seen as the fat, dumpy one, people making fun of her. Um, and then when she decides off her own back that she's going to lose all of this mm-hmm. weight really drastically, I'm wondering, is this the point? whether consciously or not, that she begins to emancipate herself yeah. from her mother's control. Well, it is that time. It's, it's right By embodying yeah. the mother figure mm-hmm. in herself, though. That you then torture. Yes. You know, because there is some masochism in there. It's an, it's an emaciating and emaciated mother. Mm-hmm. You know, she's, she's became her own mother. She doesn't need anybody else. That's it. She has internalised the mother figure who's denied her the sustenance, the nourishment of love mm-hmm. yeah. her entire life. And she's going, well, do you know what? I don't need you anymore. No. But it's because I can do this to myself mm-hmm. now. See, I remember even as a kid, if I'd had an argument with my mum or I was annoyed at her eh, and she made something to eat, the first thing you say is, I'm not hungry. You refuse you know, it. Uh-huh. So you just, I mean, it's not even symbolic. It's an absolute, immediate, real refusal of the sustenance that, that, that they're given. Mm-hmm. And it is about control. You're trying to say, I no longer need your emotional help, sustenance, support. I'm rejecting you because you've hurt me. I'm therefore rejecting your food, you know. Uh-huh, because the, if, if it's the father that cooks, then it's, it's still the same yeah, structure. Because the, the act of cooking for some people is, is how they show love and affection. Mm-hmm. And it's a bid for connection sometimes, you know, and then if they put a plate down in front of you, that might be their emotionally illiterate way of saying sorry for how they treated you. I care for you. Uh Uh-huh. And you go, well, actually, no, I'm not ready for that. I don't need Mm -hmm. that. It's you being very protecting yourself. Weirdly, and also hurting yourself because you're um, not going to take any sustenance, you know. And it does relate to other ideas of kind of religious hermits and saints yes you know uh-huh. who um refuse food the idea of physical nourishment mm-hmm. turn there, there, there's, 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 there's been a lot of writing on the relationship between um mystics and saints and their relationship with food mm-hmm. you know and you do you, you still hear it somebody that's living off a grain of rice you know within within quite a lot of traditions uh-huh. there's there's um a relationship between um, food and spirituality and as, as a kind of way of transcending... Uh, the mundane, yeah. almost. You hear about this like, new age culty yoga folk who um, can live off 
light alone and they can bend over and charge their anal chakras <laughs> in the sun. They're like, I've not eaten anything for seven years. And they look like fucking Gillian McKeith after 40 days and 40 <laughs> nights in the desert. They're like, I've charged my fucking anal chakra and that's everything that I need. Or those monks that um, slowly kill themselves. Or mummify themselves. Yeah, by eating pine needles. Yes. So... I mean, it is, it's definitely a relationship, that this idea of rejecting um, the physical for... Or transcending the physical. Yeah. It's almost like you're trying to achieve divinity. Yes, through la divina. La divina, through refusing all of the messy, inconvenient human habits, <laughs> such as eating, defecating. And, shit and shitting. Yeah, we don't need that. No. So all of this, just, just, just as this is all beginning to happen, mm-hmm. along comes... A man. A man. Uh, her husband, Giovanni Mengini. She met him when she was 23, I think still still quite large. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was 51. So what's how many years is that? You do the maths. Um, that's plenty. That's a nice kind of age gap. We like a silver fox, but I he wasn't do. attractive though. No, so that's, that's the problem. That's the issue. I don't have an issue with it. If you can go, well, they were hot, so it's fine. I know. Because even when you look at her her lover that she was with later, mm-hmm. who we won't mention yet, he was quite hot. Well... I've seen some photos on um, the the yacht... Is it the Kat- Katrina? Catherine? Oh. I can't remember what his yacht was called. Where he's got this long, floppy silver fox hair and his sunglasses and he's looking quite dashing. Yes, yeah, you know, I could see that. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, he, he had a touch of the... The Leonard Cohns about him and those oh, we good, like him. yeah, mm-hmm. and those and some of the photos that I've seen, you know, and other ones he looks like fat Picasso with a wig on. <laughs> you know what I mean when he's you see Picasso plodding about the beach, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and big shorts up with his gunt out, yeah. yeah. But um, no, but I've definitely seen some photos, and and he was. Let's not talk about him till later. Yes, we're getting there. We're still on Giovanni here. So when the wig came off. When her, her husband decided this is a great idea, got behind it, and he devoted himself to this transformation and um, helped her shift from becoming an ugly duckling into La Davina. As I say, all of a sudden the press comes knocking. And she must have loved... Who wouldn't have loved that attention all of a sudden? You mm-hmm. know, she's, she's very young, gorgeous, been wanting attention, been wanting love. All of a sudden people are throwing dresses at you you're getting the best roles and the best operas in the world mm-hmm. you should have been on cloud that, that's that moment in your life where all the doors are open everything's going the right way she's you're, arrived mm-hmm, and you're on that conveyor belt and you feel like it will never stop yeah you know there's no, you're just on this kind of escalator to transcendence to absolute perfection mm-hmm. I th- what's that called your 20s <laughs> your 30s <laughs> delusion <laughs> You know, it doesn't last for long, but um, I, I think know. I love when it and I, when I see it in other people. I love the confidence it gives people, and uh-huh. I love to see people on that trajectory. People try to knock people off it or or tell them, oh, "Come on, you know, it's not, it's never going to last." I'm like, "Fuck that!" Yeah, this is wonderful. You just I just do everything in my power to support these people. Get that other foot off the ground and ride that fucking wave mm-hmm. for all it's worth. Yeah, I think it's glor- absolutely glorious. It's like when. People used to, uh, you know, they talk about people being pretentious. I just think, at least they're fucking trying. Yeah. It's like, give, give these people a break. I just, I've got, but I'm very forgiving of genius. 
<laughs> I can't. I just like let them fucking do what they want. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Support it. Let them do what they fucking want. Better than being a little bit of Betty in the corner, mm-hmm. fucking whispering abuse from the wings. No, no. Like what? That doesn't make you any more attractive no. or talented. No, no. It shows on the face. Yes. That kind of negativity. It's, it's not like to the be twits. Done. That's what roll. I keep talking about roll doll, but that's what you said in the twits. The more nasty thoughts you have in your lifetime, the more it shows on <laughs> your face, which must mean I've never had a sour Me, thought neither. in my life. <laughs> These perfect visages. Yes, if only you could see them. (laughs) (laughs) So, when all this is going on, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden she finds herself on a beach. And who comes along but Aristotle Onassis. Now, it's actually her husband that forces her onto the yacht. So it's his fault. Yeah, she's not really... He's obviously some kind of trying to be some mover and shaker well he's obviously identifying himself with a kind of pygmalion character because he is doing that thing where he's hitched his wagon to her mm-hmm. rising star because he wasn't anything special he was no. he had like a, i don't know a lorry company or something mm-hmm. like that but he positioned himself to be like the manager and tried to kind of mastermind her career so he probably thought, well, look, there's a lot of influential and powerful people on this yacht. We'll get you amongst them because then that'll bring your career, um, you know, it'll bring you more fame and glory. Mm-hmm. And then by proxy, it'll bring it to him. Yeah. Now, Churchill was su- supposedly on the yacht as well. So, I mean, they sort of, the, the could whole... have gone another way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's taken up smoking cigars and all of a sudden the lungs, the instrument darling, would have been a, diff- a different matter. But, so this is, the, this is, the world's eyes are looking at this fucking yacht. Yes. You know, you don't, what were they touring the um, the Greek islands and somewhere else and then they ended up at the Greek islands and I think they were, they ended up on it for a few weeks, right. you know. Uh-huh. And this is where she falls in love with Aristo. Aristotle. With Aristotle Onassis. So they were both married at the time. Mm-hmm. And she left her husband, got a divorce. Mm-hmm. Expect this Now this happened over... A, a, they've left the yacht now. Uh, they're off the yacht now. <laughs> they're off the yacht. They're back home. And she expected Onassis to do the same, to get a divorce as well. Now this didn't happen at this time, but he was doing... He was trying to use his political and financial influence to ch- actually change... The, the, the laws in Greece so that, that divorces um, could be legal. Right. Okay. So you're you're dating somebody that's probably telling you that they're going to marry you. They're, you're getting divorced. They're mm-hmm. working behind the scenes to make it all legal. You would kind of think they were maybe going to marry you then. Yeah, or that they, you know, if, if they'd gone to that much trouble to make divorces legal, they'd yeah. fucking get their own one. Yeah, you'd think they would get theirs and it would be in order for to marry you, I, you know. Mm-hmm. And apparently they spoke about marriage a lot. Of course, but then perhaps he just wanted to acquire her to kind of release her from her marriage so that she would be permanently available to him. Mm-hmm. But while it still suited him to be married, he could have his cake and eat it. Well, he liked them weak. Yes. He liked them powerful and weak. Uh-huh. You know, as we'll see with another somebody who will he will then go on to marry. Yeah, vulnerable mm-hmm. uh, and pliable. So after the initial love bombing, and as I say, they did speak about marriage often, apparently only, they never took it further because every time they were about to get married, whatever that means, I mean, 
not standing outside the church, but when it seemed like a reality, they would have a massive fight. Mm-hmm. Probably, I'm guessing, because he's not wanting to. Yeah, and so doing he's everything, sabotaging, sabotaging it. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wouldn't happen. But so after all this love bombing, he continu- when he continually pers- pursued her, he would withdraw his affection and apparently, when the, they were kind of living together, would treat her very poorly. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, she mentions in her letters and diaries that he was violent. And... Uh, and, and, and diaries that were only recently published. There's a, I can't remember the name of the book. Uh, she, she said that he actually drugged her and would do sexual things to her. So drugged her and raped her. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think she... It, it seems at this time as well, she's getting... Well, if they're... To be drugged means they're being forced in you, doesn't it? It's not like you're taking them optionally. Mm-hmm. You know? So... There's drugs kicking about then. And she's having her agency being taken from her as well. As extreme as it possibly can Uh be. You know, I'm guessing what? He's giving her downers? Possibly, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and um, doing whatever he wants to her. Because, you know, but the thing is, is that she was very, very into him. You know, she completely adored him. She worshipped him. He had her on a string like a puppet he wouldn't have had to have drugged her in order to have you know sexual intimacy with her it's the fact then that points to him needing to be in control needing her to be vulnerable and and prone and to have her at his disposal in that way because to have her be an active participant clearly isn't doing it for him no and that's when he starts saying to her you don't really need to sing either. So anything, any kind of sense of agency, like you say, mm-hmm. any sense of her being kind of... Uh, autonomous out, yeah, autonomous human being. Out, out in the world, mm-hmm. uh, he's not he that interested He wants a concubine, yeah. doesn't he? And he would, would say to her, you know, you don't, I've got money, you don't need the money, don't sing if you don't want to. And she found that very liberating, obviously, because... It's the first she, time she's been told that in her whole life. Imagine the first time that somebody said to you, you know you can stop. You can stop shaving your legs. You can stop shaving your pussy. <laughs> I used to do it for friends. Like, see when when they were like, if we were at a party or something, I would phone and say, "Oh, they they can't come in." You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Or I would I've given friends permission to to just to say, "Look, you don't need to." Even even when they've done, they've done things in their career, so it's powerful, you know. Mm-hmm. And you sometimes need an external voice to say, "You know, you're torturing yourself. You don't need to do it." Mm-hmm. You know, people have said it to me, and it's it is powerful, and it can, it can change your life. It can so change external yeah. permission mm-hmm. to to relax and to release. Especially when everybody your whole life, from your your mother, fat, I'm guessing father onwards, we hear more about our mother are telling you you must do this, you have to do this, and mm-hmm. it's all that you are. And her her first husband as well, even though he was you know devoted to her, he was very much controlling and and pushing her to to do more to succeed more to become this star that he'd molded her into mm-hmm. so to finally hear from someone again aristotle is older than her as well so mm-hmm. he's another father figure finally a parental figure who just says stop it's enough i love you as you are stop but he doesn't no fucking bastard mm-hmm. so <laughs> In many interviews during this time, she continually talks about leaving the stage then. She mm-hmm. continually talks about it, it, it being something that she no longer needs. If she had the love of a man 
and children, she would give it up immediately. Mm -hmm. Here's a quote. I would have preferred to have a happy family and children. I think that is the main vocation of a woman. Problematic. Hashtag problematic. But destiny brought me into this career. I couldn't get out and I was forced to it quite frequently. First by my mother and then by by my husband. But destiny is destiny. There's no way out. So this is her stating that what she feels will bring her happiness and fulfilment is to embody the the ideal motherly role. That she never had. That she never had. She wants to be a happy spouse that she never saw modelled for her in her own childhood because her parents' marriage was very volatile. There was infidelities, so on and so forth. And she wants to have children of her own, possibly mm. to to right the wrongs of her own upbringing. Yeah, but remember at this time, this was also the time that it is rumoured, and, and um, I think it was one of her maids I've seen being interviewed that said it was also at this time that she had an abortion. Now, was that abortion on her own terms? Or oh, I suspect, and again, speculation, but I suspect that it may have been Aristotle who put the brakes Hmm. on that you'd think that I definitely think that but then at the same time the whole of society now she would have been the most or one of the most famous women in the world mm-hmm. um, having a child out of wedlock right because yeah. he's not going to marry her no and having a, a child to try and entice somebody to be with you well that's the opposite of what he wants so it must have been it must have seemed like her only option yeah, so really it was an abortion under duress. If it was her choice, it wasn't a free choice. No. There were pressures there. She may have felt like this would push him away. This would also, if she's so concerned with her body and her figure, that's another factor, isn't it? Well, she can't have him. Mm-hmm. He's, it seems now that she's not. She's get, that that's not an option. And that would affect her. And if she had the child, etc., it would affect her her status as a star, it would affect her body sing, as a singer, etc. She would have nothing. She wouldn't mm-hmm. have the safety of the marriage and family and she wouldn't have a career. But what she would have would be the unconditional love of a child, mm-hmm. which I'm guessing, again, I don't know for a fact, but I'm guessing that that would have been... The thing that would have tortured her is, is that choice between unconditional love of a child and the appeal of that and losing the very conditional love Mm -hmm. of her lover of the public of her for her own self yeah but it must have been hard because she wouldn't she's not even got a model of what unconditional love between a mother and a child is other than her 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 teachers and things like that Mm -hmm. so this is a woman that's absolutely breaking yeah and that doesn't seem to have any strategies, emotional ways out, mm-hmm. you know. And then this is at the same time, just at this time, and this is just a little bit later than that, in 1968, she's reading a newspaper. Some reports say she heard it on, her, on the radio. Mm-hmm. And she hears that um, Onassis is marrying Jackie Kennedy. That is the other Jackie... Mm-hmm. Another nemesis called Jackie that I was alluding to earlier. Imagine that. Imagine that you have been in a relationship 
with a man for many, many years. There's been talk of marriage, you know, you feel like it's... I mean, deep down she must have known that he had no intention of marrying her because he had ample opportunity and never did. But she held on to so much hope yes. that they would be together and then to suddenly find out, completely blindsided, that he has just gone and married one of the most famous widows mm -hmm. in the world, incredibly glamorous. They look quite similar, mm -hmm. similar colouring, you know. So here's a better version of you. Like her sister, yeah. yes. She's never enough, she's never worthy she's enough. Never gonna, but she always had that hope, that word, yeah. that small, small word. And I think had it till the very end to, that she would, that there was that hope that she would be with him, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and it was during this time um, she writes to her, her singing teacher again, Elvira. She writes, my mind is weakened and my soul too. I'm so lost after so many years of work and sacrifice for one man. I find myself incapable of knowing where to go. It's the last straw. Now, that is absolutely it's heartbreaking. The, look, my, the hair is standing up on my You've arm. You've got goosebumps. It's just... It could be the Paris wind. I mean, it may well the be roux. that. You know, the Jan January's in Paris. But so he married Jackie, but he didn't even have the kindness either woman to commit did he because mm. he was still mm -hmm. continuing to keep maria hanging on that yeah. whole time how did he do that what was well, he doing all the way through it he would continually phone maria mm -hmm. uh, even on their even on his honeymoon with jackie could you i mean my heart even goes out you know your heart goes out to jackie of course uh -huh. so in this sense um, uh, Jack, jackie's an innocent bystander as well she's right? just lost her husband in such a public, a public hideous way she's been swept off her feet you can guarantee that he would have given her the love bombing treatment yeah. again which he's clearly maneuvering himself to to try and enter um american high society oh, yeah. so he's using jackie and at the same time, it's a complete sham. Yeah, but she, she's came, Jackie's came from one devastating relationship with a cheating bastard. Mm -hmm. As at her weakest, uh, yeah. apparently was having breakdown after breakdown. Oh, understandably, you know, mm -hmm. you've got somebody taking you under their wings, another cheating fucking bastard. Mm -hmm. Apparently giving you everything that you need you know, mm -hmm. uh, th these are women that had the whole world looking at them mm -hmm. with that standing next to them. Yeah. You know, and he hoped, it seems that he hoped that Jackie would give him access to American business, American power, American politics. And of course, with Maria, he got cultural cachet. He was kind of looked down on by a, a, a lot of people. Uh, but Jackie gave him that polit he thought Jackie could give him that political heft mm -hmm. so as I say that's the last straw for Maria emotionally and after eight and a half years with Anassas she was tossed away and publicly humiliated can you imagine you know public humiliation aside just think of what was happening uh, to her internally mm -hmm. after becoming everything everyone wanted her to be she still wasn't enough as you said after the marriage ended with Jackie, he'd, he'd turn up again outside their door, whistling and shouting up at the window. Uh, and in order for it to stop, or like in order not to draw attention to it, she finally 
um, let him in. And they started up what she calls a passionate friendship. Right. That euphemism. Yeah. (laughs) They started pumping again. Yeah, I hate that fucking phrase, friends with benefits, you know, but I'm guessing... Maybe it just means that she was aware of the fact that they wouldn't get married, but she would fuck them. Yes, so perhaps And I think that. they genuinely did. Yeah. I mean, need each other in the, and they bonded in some deep way, obviously. Well, there's clearly an unmet need on both sides that drew them to one another, but I think her referring to it as a passionate friendship is very, very telling because yeah. it's almost like she's come to terms with the limitations. She's mm-hmm. lost hope, essentially. She's lost hope of it ever becoming the idealised relationship that she craves. Yeah. It's, and passion is tumultuous. You know, it's she, yeah. she's kind of allowed... She's not, it's not like some romantic friendship. She's really aware that it's emotionally messy. Passion means pain. It means, mm-hmm. you know, as, as well as ecstasy, it's agony. And, and that's what she gets from him. And she's addicted to the drama. Yeah. And you can see still in interviews at the time, just, just the, there are interviews where they are friends again and she's been asked about it Mm -hmm. and she's asked about marriage Mm -hmm. and you can see in her response that it's still kind of possibly on the table she never says I have no idea what you're talking you know what I mean yeah she never dismisses it she's always like well we'll we are we are great friends and you know what I mean it's it's never she's she you can see that she's still hoping Mm -hmm. somewhere and it's during this time before she made a few comebacks sometimes touring with some um, of our, our old musical collaborators, uh, that I suppose she starts to try and find herself and find herself back on the stage again. And the audiences loved it. The mm-hmm. critics didn't. And as her, have you seen any of the, the, the later performances? I think there's one at Covent Garden. Mm-hmm. I'm sure she's wearing a beautiful blue chiffon number. Oh, uh-huh. And she looks wonderful. Now, what age must she be? Would she be in her forties? Late forties? Yeah, actually, yeah, I think so. Late forties, and she—I mean, she's absolutely looking absolutely fantastic. But it is heartbreaking mm. hearing this voice straining and breaking. Yeah, you know, and of course everybody loves it because for them she's still like Alice. She's like and like they would say things like her and obviously her and a bad day is better than anybody else on a good day. I mean. She wasn't. She was really struggling. But it's, you know? the, it's the spectacle, and we've seen that with, again, talking about Edith Piaf, um, you know, when she was obviously declining, um, but, you know, the audience has lapped up with Amy Winehouse. Yeah. So I'm thinking of that, you know, some of her later performances were really difficult. Devastating. Devastating Horrible. to watch, but it's that whole idea of the the suffering artist did you did you see that um, performance that she did at glass amy winehouse did at glass uh-huh. but that is like watching the most traumatic thing in it's the world it's excruciating no that nobody could stop that or any you know there was nobody standing saying no you're not nobody looking after her that's what it was because you know, that's someday possibly allegedly that's jammed full of everything they could take mm-hmm. getting shoved on a stage yeah. To, it was, it's, it's, the most, it's a body at was, breaking point. And I'm sure she said later that she that during all that somebody sexually assaulted her. Oh my god. Because you can see, and I've, I've, it's, it's horrible. Anyway, poor, poor darling Amy. Mm-hmm. So, 
But the audiences lapped it up. They love it because it's, it, you get some people that run towards the gallows in the car crash, don't you? Of course. And just think it's a spectacle, mm-hmm. you know, and love to watch people fail. Yeah, that there's there's that kind of Schadenfreude as well, and like the critics were quite savage as well mm-hmm. too, weren't they? Because again, they build you up and they take great pleasure in knocking you down. Yeah. So, a few years later, after these comebacks had reached their end, Aristotle and Asses died uh, on the fifteenth of March, nineteen seventy-five, and she was then now totally irreparably. Broken. Because that is the end of hope, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's the end. Just before he died, she crept in and through the back door into the hospital and whispered in his ear, you do it. It's me, Maria, your little canary. That's <laughs> <laughs> quite funny, it is quite funny. But even the even her diminishing herself, in, I mean, she's the fucking biggest songstress Aye, she's not a world. fucking canary oh, down a mine, but canary. maybe she is. And then... Home to 36, Avenue Georges Mandel, where we now stand, with armfuls of roses for Maria. She died on September the 16th, just two years later, 1977, and was hastily cremated. I think it was one day later. I've seen images, I've seen footage of her being rushed out from that place, so she never had like a place of rest. Yes. They took her straight from her apartment right into her body, straight uh, into um, the uh, hearse and then straight to the crematorium. That's quite strange, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And there are conspiracy theories. Okay. Uh, I've read a few. One, actually one written by her husband, who obviously coming in trying to make a buck, mm-hmm. and he thought it was possibly a suicide. Right. Understandable, but, mm-hmm. yes. I think maybe more a slow suicide. Oh, yeah. One of those ones where, I mean, in, where she's just withdrawn and, and given up on everything, including life. And so there's also rumours that she was uh, addicted to meds at this time. She was mm-hmm. being treated for um, various disorders. And she did have a taste for um, quaaludes. Oh, the ludes. Yes, mm-hmm. she had written to her sister a few times. I'm guessing they're talking now. And she was trying to get her sister to bring them from Greece because they had been banned in France. So this is a, this is her period of being a recluse, of being um, in self-imposed exile in mm-hmm. Paris, isn't it? She wasn't leaving the apartment. She wasn't seeing anyone. She wasn't receiving visitors. So she probably had... Well, she did have a lot of time on her hands to kill, which may be why she then reached out to her sister again, all these phone calls, because she'd turned her back on the world. You know, she and some of her her friends that did manage to visit would say that she just wouldn't entertain any kind of thought of the outside world, wouldn't want want to talk about a, a, a future or anything that was happening outside that apartment mm-hmm. and she would listen to her old recordings we're getting Norma Desmond vibes yeah and it's it just it breaks my heart I, I think you, you, you see that kind of it's understandable you know mm-hmm. my good old day I mean I've been drunk and flicked through 
my old Instagram posts. Thought, oh, that's a funny one. Have you ever done that? <laughs> oh, constantly. Yeah, you're yeah. like, oh, it was great there. Oh, yeah, that, that's quite a good... Bored and smiling to yourself in bed, mm-hmm. looking at old posts, going down memory Those lane. Those were the days, you know, my friend. Yeah. But just but with that talent, and she must... And all that depth of feeling, mm-hmm. listening... Oh, it's devastating, eh? It is, and it's just... I mean, what does the world have to offer if you feel like the world cannot offer you love any longer you know it's like well I have no interest in it because Mm -hmm. the the thing that I wanted the hope that I was clinging to is dead literally so and what do I have now I don't have my career I don't have the adulation um, don't have family don't have family I, I mean she has friends she has maids who work for her but again this is empty to her Mm -hmm. she has not managed to achieve managed to secure the type of love that would sustain her no and her faithful maid bruna was there right up till the very end i think after she collapsed apparently tried to revive her with a good strong black coffee (laughs) Uh, and she was maria's psychopomp Mm-hmm. leading her to the great opera house in the sky. What an operatic exit. <laughs> well done. So I think uh, now we have discussed our Maria's tragic life and the ways, the many ways she turned away from the world becoming this very beautiful, very sad, mournful recluse. Mm-hmm. A saint to recluses and hermits like us. Uh, Let's end with the words from um, Puccini's Opera Tosca, her famous operatic aria, Visi d'Arte. Okay, Okay. shall I read this for you? Actually, I'll recall it from memory. Yes, okay. I lived for my art. I lived for love. I never did harm to a living soul. With a secret hand, I relieved as many misfortunes as I knew of. Always with true faith, my prayer rose to the holy shrines. Always with true faith, I give flowers to the altar. In the hour of grief, why, why, O Lord, why do you reward me thus? I gave jewels for the Madonna's mantle, and I gave my song to the stars, to heaven, which smiled with more beauty. In the hour of grief, why, why, O Lord, ah, why do you reward me thus? And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for joining us for the very first episode of We Hate You. Um, We have been your hosts, Alex and Alexandra. 
We hope you like what you've heard and we'd welcome any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. You can reach us via our Instagram, which is at wehateyou underscore podcast, and we will be back with you next month. Until next time.